Welcome back to another spooky episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and let's get started. All right. I digress. So there's another legend of Mercy Brown. Mercy Brown may rival Count Dracula as the most notorious vampire. Unlike Count Dracula, however, Mercy was a real person. She lived in Exeter, Rhode Island, and was the daughter of George Brown, a farmer. After George lost many family members, including Mercy, in the late 1800s to tuberculosis, his community used Mercy as a scapegoat to explain their deaths. It is uncommon at the time to blame several it was common at the time to blame several deaths in one family on the undead. The bodies of each death family member were often exhumed and searched for signs of vampirism. When Mercy's body was exhumed and didn't display severe decay, not surprising since her body was placed in an above ground vault during a New England winter, basically refrigerated. The townspeople accused her of being a vampire and making her family sick from her icy grave. They cut out her heart and burned it. They fed the ashes to her sick brother. Perhaps not surprisingly, he died shortly thereafter. Oh my gosh. I mean, if you were going to be alive during any era, <laughs> I guess now is the time since we don't have vampires wandering around and we eat each other's ashed hearts <laughs> as cures. You know, they were just making stuff up back then. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> Here, eat this. It'll make you better. No wonder he died. All right, welcome back. So today we're going to jump into vampire history and learn a little bit about where the legends come from, a couple of the legends, a couple of the true stories that helped form the lore, and then we'll go from there. All right, my first article comes from history.com, so you know it's historic. <laughs> Uh, but let's go ahead and begin. All right. Vampires are evil mythological beings who roam the world at night searching for people whose blood they feed upon. They may be the best known classic monsters of all. Most people associate vampires with Count Dracula, the legendary blood-sucking subject of Bram Stoker's epic novel, Dracula, which was published in 1897. But the history of vampires began long before Stoker was born. So you ask, what is a vampire? There are almost as many different characteristics of vampires as there are vampire legends. But the main characteristic of vampires is they drink human blood. They typically drain their victims' blood using their sharp fangs, killing them, and turning them into vampires. In general, vampires hunt at night since sunlight weakens their powers some may have the ability to morph into a bat or a wolf. Vampires have super strength and often have a hypnotic, sensual effect on their victims. They can see their image, they can't see their image in a mirror and they cast no shadows. All right, so that's basically what we all know about vampires. Uh, let's get into where one of the maybe the legend came from Vlad the Impaler. It's thought Bram Stoker named Count Dracula after Vlad Dracula, 
also known as Vlad the Impaler. Vlad Dracula was born in Transylvania, Romania. He ruled Wallachia, Romania, off and on from 1456 to 1462. Some historians describe him as a just yet brutally cruel ruler who valiantly fought off the Ottoman Empire. He earned his nickname because of his favorite way to kill his enemies was to impale them on a wooden stake. According to the legend, Vlad Dracula enjoyed dining amidst his dying victims and dipped his bread in their blood. Whether these gory tales are true is unknown. Many people believe these stories sparked Stoker's imagination to create Count Dracula, who is also from Transylvania, sucked his victim's blood, and could be, could be killed by driving a stake through his heart. But according to Dracula expert Emily Miller, Stoker didn't base Count Dracula's life on Vlad Dracula. Nonetheless, the similarities between the two are intriguing. So you ask, are vampires real? Vampire superstition thrived in the Middle Ages, especially as the plague disseminated entire towns. The disease often left behind bleeding mouth lesions on its victims, which, to the uneducated, was a sure sign of vampirism. It wasn't uncommon for anyone with an unfamiliar physical or emotional illness to be labeled a vampire. Many researchers have pointed to porphyria, a blood disorder that can cause several severe blisters on the skin that's exposed to sunlight as a disease that may have been linked to the vampire legend. Some symptoms of porphyria... <sighs> I wonder if I'm saying that right. P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-I-A. Porphyria. I guess. Some symptoms of porphyria can be temporarily relieved by ingesting blood. Other diseases blamed for prompting the vampire myth include rabies or goiter. When a, suspect, when a suspected vampire died, their bodies were often disinterred to search for signs of vampirism. In some cases, a stake was thrust through the corpse's heart to make sure they stayed dead. Other accounts describe the decapitation and burning of corpses of suspected vampires well into the 19th century. Interesting. That's really cool that, not really cool that that's an actual thing, but you know how they can't be exposed to sunlight? There's an actual disease, that blood disorder, that can cause severe blisters on the skin when exposed to sunlight. And some symptoms can be temporarily relieved by ingesting blood. I mean, that's basically your vampire right there. You know, ah, the sun, it's blistering my skin. Let me drink blood and it'll fix it. All right. Although modern science has silenced the vampire fears of the past, people who call themselves vampires do exist. They're normal-seeming people who drink small amounts of blood in a perhaps misguided effort to stay healthy. Communities of self-identified vampires can be found on the internet and cities and towns around the world. To avoid rekindling vampire superstitions, most modern vampires keep to themselves and typically conduct their feeding rituals, which include drinking the blood of the willing donors, in private. 
Some vampires don't ingest human blood, but claim to feed off the energy of others. Many state that if they don't feed regularly, they become agitated or depressed. Vampires became mainstream after Dracula was published. Since then, Count Dracula's legendary persona has been the topic of many films, books, and television shows. Given the fascination people have with all things horror, vampires, real or imagined, are likely to continue to inhabit the Earth for years to come. Let's take a short break and get right back at it after this. Alright, welcome back. So we're getting into another article, this one from rd.com, on vampire legends. Uh, These vampire myths have been haunting people for centuries. Some of them are actually rooted in fact, which makes them all the more creepy. Uh, One of the people we haven't mentioned yet is the legend of of the Blood Countess. Countess Elizabeth Bathory who lived in 1560 to 1614 in Hungary, was accused of vampire behavior, biting the flesh of victims and bathing in their blood as a beauty treatment. Weird. I'd hate to be a servant in her household. Um, The Legend of Dracula, Son of the Dragon. Uh, Still talking about Vlad the Impaler, which we've already mentioned. Um, This one's interesting. The Legend of the Ka. Egyptians also had their share of vampire lore and bloodsuckers. The Egyptian goddess Semet was known for her taste for blood. And according to the Egyptian Book of the Dead, if a certain part of the soul, called the Ka, didn't receive adequate offerings, it left the tomb to to drink blood. Very creepy. And these are just... Boom, boom. You know, short, concise. Um, In China, vampires had long hooked claws and red eyes. In Chinese vampire legends, they're known as Shangxi, which translates to corpse hopper. Corpse, corpse hopper. Looking for the creepy myths and legends from around the world. Uh, We go next to... The legend of Ekimu, a Sumerian and Babylonian myth dating back to 4000 BC, describes an Ekimu, a spirit that isn't buried properly, that returns to suck the life from the living. 4000 BC. Whew, vampire legends have been around for a, quite a long time. Alright, the legend of the rising dead. Throughout Northwest Europe, stones called dolmens, were placed over graves. Some historians believe they were there to prevent the dead from rising or evil spirits from escaping. The Legend of the Vampires of the Plague During the 16th century, it was believed that vampires fed off the bodies of plague victims and female vampires spread the plague. Those suspected of being vampires were were even buried with rocks or bricks wedged in their mouth. Oof. I'm telling you, would not want to be alive during those days. The legend of vampire coffins. Some grave robbers would open a coffin and the corpse would move or sit up, a natural reaction that would have been caused by decomposition. 
This may have led to the legend of vampires sleeping in coffins. The legend of vampire in medicine. Certain medical ailments can mimic symptoms of vampirism, which helps strengthen vampire legends. For example, oh, this is a long word. Hematodipsia. Hematodipsia is a sexual thirst for blood. And hemerlopia is day blindness. Porphyria causes sensitivity to light and teeth that are stained reddish brown. Okay, so basically there's actual medical science behind vampirism then. Uh, the hematodipsia, the sexual thirst for blood, that's your vampire classic. Uh, the day blindness thing, hermalopia, means they couldn't go out in the daylight. And then if they did go out in the daylight, porphyria caused you to break out into blisters like we already learned. And it stained your teeth reddish brown like you've been drinking blood. So, if someone was unfortunate enough to have all three of those, I could see how back in the day... You know, people could be like, it's a honest, true-to-God vampire. That's really interesting. All right. The Legend of the After Devourers. Vampire legends in 16th century Germany differed somewhat more familiar stories about dead rising. In northern Germany, the superstition called vampires the Natschterer, or After Devourers, because they never left their graves, but instead gnawed on their burial shrouds. This belief was because the posthumous release of bodily fluids would make the burial shrouds wilt and fray like they had been chewed. And why were they digging these people up? Anyway, the legend of restless souls. According to the Smithsonian, the word vampire actually comes from Slavic Europe, which, with predecessors to the word originating in the 10th century, until their con conversion to Christianity, which took place throughout the 7th to 9th centuries, Slavic people cremated their dead, believing that it was the only way to free the soul from the body. Because of this, the new practice of burying the dead would have horrified some. They believed burying objects with the bodies, even covering graves with stones in hopes of appeasing the buried souls, keeping them from rising. It's interesting. Legend of the Rhode Island Vampire. We've already heard about Mercy Brown. So we will skip over that one. All right, and that's it for the short list. So even articles such as countryliving.com have stuff about vampires. Um, a lot of it we've already gone over, but I thought the end cap on this article that they wrote um, on vampires was pretty interesting, and we'll get into more in other articles. 
But it says, guys, there's there are more than 5,000 people out there who actually consume human and animal blood. The condition of craving blood for energy, also known as hematomania, is real. Hem, hemato, I guess that's blood. And mania, madness, crazy, blood crazy, blood madness. The difference here is that these folks drink from willing donors. They don't want to be confused with the scary portrayals of vampires. These real vampires, quote unquote, are often just average people with unusual tastes. Some choose to live in like-minded communities. Most are fairly private about their taste for blood for fear of getting confronted by people with wooden stakes, garlic, a silver bullet, or fire. But with organizations like Atlanta's Vampire Alliance popping up, there's a growing advocacy for those that pursue this lifestyle. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so with that... There's only one real question to ask ourselves. Do you think vampires are real? And in modern day society? Jumping over to the Guardian. Uh, jumping right into this issue. People who claim to be vampires are in the thousands. With demographics transcending class, race, and gender. But there's a reason they stay in the shadows. Drinking blood isn't that isn't what Hollywood makes it out to be, according to real-life vampires. First of all, there's no biting. There's neither that's neither safe nor sanitary. And with too many vital arteries, the neck isn't the favorite spot. Transactions aren't carnages, leaving the victim lifeless behind the dark alley, nor do vampires sleep in coffins or burn in the daylight. They're generally cool with garlic. Most of them don't even have fangs. Instead, modern vampires get their sustenance from inch-long incisions made by sterilized scalpel into th on a fleshy part of the body that doesn't scar. Though vampires may suck it up directly from the source, medically trained personnel usually perform the procedure. There's paperwork too. Donors don't just have to consent. They also provide health certificates providing the absence of bloodborne diseases. Still, feeding is a sensual and sacred ritual. The people who claim to be vampires are in the thousands worldwide, with demographics transcending... I've already read that part. <laughs> transcending borders, class, race, gender, and increasingly, researchers studying them. We're people you pass on the street and likely socialize with on a daily basis, said Murticus. What a name. The 37-year-old founding member of Atlanta's Vampire Alliance. We've often keep this aspect of our life secret for fear we'll be misunderstood and to safeguard against reprisals from what society deems taboo. Murticus has identified as a real vampire since 1997 and speaks eloquently and passionately about what vampirism is and is not. It's not a cult. Not a religion, not a dangerous practice, not a paraphilia or an offshoot of the BDSM community, not a community of disillusioned teenagers, and definitely not what's depicted in fictional books, movies, or television. An antique dealer by profession, married with two dogs, he's one of 
exceptionally few vampires to be open about his identity. I hide in plain sight, he explains. For almost a decade, he's been personally worked with academics, social scientists, psychologists, lawyers, law enforcement agencies, and others on how best to approach, research, and understand this vampire subculture. An Atlanta native, he is known as Murdicus both legally and personally, even on his Starbucks card. And while he mostly dresses head-to-toe in black, he doesn't don colored lenses or fang prosthetics. In fact, he is keen to say he really isn't into it because vampirism is cool. Real vampires don't care much about the pop culture buzz and don't look the stereotype. Only 35% of real vampires are into goth, he claims. Some even sneer at the lifestylers, known as fashion vampires or posers. Apart from the societal taboos attached with the practice, consuming human blood is generally not advisable. Not only can it carry a range of diseases, including hepatitis, HIV, and parasites, but also hazardous amounts of iron. Indeed, modern vampires often insist that their cravings are not voluntary. Life would have been easier without them, but some something they're born with. Yet it isn't necessarily sexual, though they can and do overlap. Real vampirism should not be confused with blood fetishism. Oh my gosh, didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> Insiders refer to the realization of one's vampiric nature as an awakening. It isn't like the dramatic process often portrayed in the movies, and one isn't be turned through vampire bites. That sentence was weird. And one isn't be turned through vampire bites. For most vampires, it's a gradual and frightening process, normally manifesting itself in puberty and possibly following trauma. Through trial and error, vampires learn what curbs their hunger. Let's check the time. We are still good. No one knows what causes hematomania. Hematomania. The craving to drink blood. Those who experience it describe it as an intense thirst-like sensation, an addiction with withdrawal-like symptoms. Animal blood or rare steaks may act as substitutes, but for most vampires, nothing beats fresh blood. Frequency and amount vary, but for many, a few, ta- a few teaspoons once a week is enough. This naturally is supplemented with a normal diet. After all, real vampires aren't Real vampires are human, with human needs. Most people are able to maintain healthy energy levels through diet, exercise, social interactions, and occasional cappuccino, says Merdicus. We've had to develop an alternative means to safe to sate our energy needs. Not all dr- drink blood either. The community generally acknowledges two types of vampires. The blood vampires which are sanguinarians, and the psychic or energy vampires who drain life force, also known as prana or chi, rather than blood from others. We do not identify with fictional characters, supernatural powers, or immortality, nor do we have any difficulty distinguishing between fantasy and reality, Murdicus says. 
adding that if anything, pop culture is catching up to them. Real Vampires, he says, has existed as an organization community for nearly 30 years and is solid, solitary for far longer. As there is no test for vampirism, everyone is welcome, and it's a remarkably diverse crowd, ranging from doctors, lawyers, soldiers, scientists, artists, teachers, and parents of all age, gender, ethnicity, and religion. Some choose to align with like-minded through courts and houses, through, though the majority says do not. If there is one thing real vampires seem to have in common, it's their reluctance to tell the world who or what they are. Vampirism is perhaps an unfortunate term, admits John Edgar Browning, a researcher who has studied real vampire communities in New Orleans and Buffalo for nearly a decade. The members of this community suffer from the constant conflation of their identity by the outside world with the mythological and filmic vampire. As a result, outsiders generally think of them as being out of their minds. According to Browning, real vampires have carved out their identity using very little of pop culture's representation. And while the mainstream may love vampires on screen, those who identify as such live in deep state of deep fear of hate, crime, and discrimination. Had they called themselves something else entirely, the reception may have developed quite differently. However, any member of their special health issues is almost always treated with suspicion by medical professionals. The inclusion of the word vampire only intensifies it. Unfortunately, the fictitious misconceptions that have translated into real-life stigmas, a study published by D.J. Williams of Idaho State University raised alarm that individuals from the community rarely reveal their practice to clinicians, fearing they may be labeled as psychopathical no, psychopathological in some way, or even wicked. While vampirism isn't illegal or not included in Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, several self-identified vampires worry they may be deemed not competent to perform in types of social roles, including careers and parenting, or even be hospitalized. To preserve the intensity of fear and emotion reported by participants, William chose to present their questionnaire responses in poetic structures. Would I be comfortable disclosing my vampire identity? No, I would never do that. I would detract from real issues for which I was seeking treatment. I have no desire to be classified as delusional, immature, or a threat to public safety. Social workers, psychologists, counselors should listen and be open. They need to know more about spiritual things and not immediately jump to treating a disorder. For us, vampirism, vampirism is normal. While Murdicus does not deny the inherent, inherently predatory nature of vampirism, he insists that an overwhelmingly an overwhelming majority adhere to ethical and safe feeding practices and are of sound mind, judgment, and product productively contribute to society. Right. Let's take a short break and get right back at it after this. All right, welcome back. Uh, going along the same thread, um, 
jumping over to ABC News, uh, they did an article on this phenomena of real vampires. Um, it, back in 2009. Um, and yeah, we'll just get into it. From the popular shows like True Blood to hit movies like TV, uh, or hit movies like Twilight, the lust for vampire stories seems to be insatiable. Uh, Twilight's New Moon broke record box office records uh, this past weekend. <laughs> that tells you how long ago this was, 2009. Earning more than $250 million worldwide. But are vampires anything more than fiction? In New Orleans, French Quarter, a man who goes by the name Balthazar Ashantison claims to be a real-life vampire. He says he suffers from a psychological or physiological condition that prevents him from creating enough of the essential daily energies to get through even basic tasks, making him feel perpetually drained. I'm a vampire, said Belfazar, 44, who works as a spiritual consultant at a shop called Voodoo Authentica. My method has been, or my method of getting that energy source is through the blood. Whether you believe him or not, Belfazar insists that to stay healthy, he must feed on blood. He's not alone in his beliefs. He's an elder in a secretive but widespread community of people who are convinced they are real vampires. In a worldwide phenomenon, said Catherine Re Ramsland, professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University and author of The Science of Vampires. She has spent years studying the vampire subculture. Some people are misfits, she said. Some people are just creative people who don't feel like they fit into normal society. And some people find that a vampire is a very empowering figure and they want to identify with that. These self-described vampires believe they have an energy leak which makes them sick, depressed, lethargic, and say that only by feeding on other people's energy or blood do they feel better. Belfazar and all other self-described vampires uh, 2020 spoke to for this story preferred not to be identified by their real names. In fiction, when vampires feed, they kill. However, in the strange world of so-called real vampires, there is an etiquette to drinking blood. According to Belfazar, they don't attack strangers and bite them on the neck the way the horror films show them. I find that abhorrent behavior to feed, to force a feeding on anyone, said Belfazar. He said that he feeds two or three times a week, sometimes on blood, sometimes on what he calls psychic energy, and always on consenting donors. Sanguine, which we learned about in the previous article, vampire demonstrates safe blood feed. There are several different ways to carry out a blood feed, according to those in the vampire community. Some sanguine or sanguine vampires draw blood from a vein, transfer it to a glass, and then drink it. Others, like Belfazar, practice mouth-to-womb feeding. To lift the veil on what society considers taboo, he agreed to demonstrate what he describes as a safe blood feed. In front of 2020 cameras, Belfazar removed his prosthetic fangs, which he wears to break the ice in social situations, which people who may be curious about his lifestyle. Then he rinses 
with mouthwash and sterilized the skin of his donor. Measured which measures which he said are meant to keep things safe. A man calling himself Bo was the donor, and it wasn't his first time. It's not comfortable, but it doesn't hurt, he said. I mean, it's not any worse than getting a piercing or a tattoo. Belfasar used an exacto knife to make a small cut on Bo's back. As blood flowed, Belfasar drank it directly from the wound. At his most hungry, Belfasar said he ingested six ounces of blood, but warned normal humans, who he said are known as mundanes in vampire lingo, that drinking blood can, can make you sick if you are not a true sanguine. This strange feeding is what Belfazar and others say they need to stay healthy, but it can also be an erotic experience for those who participate. It's a rush of energy. There's a bond between the two individuals, says Bo. Even though vampires are taking from someone that there is an energy that we give off, said Belfazar. For some people, they describe it as calming. Other people describe it as sensually arousing. Jade, who reads tarot cards in the French Quarter, is also an elder in New Orleans' vampire community, told 2020 she needs to feed on sex and blood. The more, the better. I can do it once a week and stay balanced. I can do it twice a week and stay happy. I can do it daily and just be really happy. Not all so-called vampires identify themselves as sanguine or blood-drinking vampires. However, most interviewed by 2020 admit they have at one time or another tried drinking blood. Sucking blood. The danger is very real. Doctors say that feeding on blood has no medicinal value. To ingest the blood, biologically speaking, it has no value whatsoever, making any medical difference, said Dr. Jeffrey Hobden, an infectious disease expert at LSU Health Science Center. The placebo effect can be very powerful in this case. It can also be dangerous. Not only is the person who is ingesting the blood at risk, but the person who is donating the blood who is cut is also at risk for infection. What's more, the blood is tainted with, if the blood is tainted with HIV, hepatitis, or other viruses, they can be introduced into the bloodstream through any cut in the mouth or gums. There could also be unidentified dangerous bloodborne viruses that could be that could source of a disease. Belfasar said he and his donors are tested regularly. He said he also believes he is somehow immune to infections. I've been doing this since I was 13, so that's 31 years of never being bothered with any other infections. So there's something that bothers a normal, we call a mundane human. For some reason, they don't bother me. In her 14 years of drinking blood, Jade said she has fed thousands of times using her judgment to screen potential donors. I'm very picky about my donors. Some people go for medical testing. I find that too expensive. I just use my own perceptions, and I'm never wrong. Oof. Dr. Hobden says that kind of thinking could be deadly. I'm sure that some of these folks will be seeing them in the hospital with failing livers from chronic hepatitis or liver cancer. The danger is very real, he said. All right, so more real vampires. Cool, cool, cool. Doctor's warning against this practice for sure. Not surprisingly. 
All right. Let's take a short break and get right back at it after this. All right, welcome back. Jumping on over to OprahDaily.com. Um, they have an actual uh, cool, complete history of vampires um, from 2020. So let's jump into that. <clears throat> All right. Say the word vampire and any number of images of po may pop into your mind. A Halloween costume with plastic fangs and a cape. Perhaps our favorite fanged pop culture characters from movies or TV shows. From Bram Stoker's Dracula, first published in 1897, to the glittery Cullen clan of the Twilight series fame. There's centuries worth of stories to draw upon. And like a seemingly young yet actually undead bloodsucker, the history of vampire folklore dates back far more years than you probably think. Up until the 20th century, many people believed vampire stories were true. Across cultures and continents, the powers of vampire-like ghouls were blamed for phenomena that there weren't yet medical explanations for, such as the spread of disease during the Middle Ages or what happens to the human body after death. By the end of the 1800s, authors like Stoker, who gave us one of the most famous vampires in history, created a sexy alternative narrative. Now vampires weren't serpentine predators, but tortured romantics who never age, often wealthy and attractive to boot. As folklorist Michael E. Bell wrote in his book, Food for the Dead, on the trail of New England's vampires, could any figure serve so well as a metaphor for human nature? What better food for the imagination than a creature that incorporates sex, blood, violence, shape-shifting, superhuman power, and eternal life? Here's a brief history of vampires and why they tap our perpetual fascination with blood's relationship to life, plus some stories about real vampire hunters, or people who thought they were. The first vampire story is tough to pinpoint. The image of the seductive Nightwalker we think of today was majorly shaped by pop culture dating back to the 1800s, but seeds of the modern concept have appeared in mythologies since the beginning of recorded history. The story of Sekhmet, the Egyptian feline warrior goddess associated with both plague and healing, is considered by some to be one of the oldest vampire tales. Legend holds that the sun god Ra sent his daughter Sekhmet down to punish humankind for their disobedience. But after Sekhmet couldn't stop drinking blood amid her slaughter, Ra quelled her planet-draining thirst by dying a bunch of beer red. Basically, she guzzled it and slept for three days. Lilith, a 4,000-year-old figure in Jewish folklore, who in some stories was Adam's first wife before Eve, had a monstrous rep in ancient Babylonia. Her name derives from a Sumerian word for female demons or wind spirits. Lilith too. According to the scholar J. Skurlock, via the Jewish Women Archive, the Babylonians believed that Lilithu were hungry for victims because they had once been human and slipped through the window into people's houses looking for victims to take place, to take the place of husbands and wives who they themselves never had. 
While the image of Lilith as deadly, hungry, temptress has endured for centuries, Lilith was the first vampire in True Blood, for example. Uh, subsequent and self-identified feminists have embraced her as the first misunderstood feisty lady, inspiring the Jewish-American magazine of the same name. Many cultures have some equivalent of life-draining creatures. In the Philippines, for example, there's a managal who some believe can shapeshift into a woman and suck blood from the bellies of pregnant women and hates garlic. Vampires were really born in Europe, though. In the Middle Ages, variations on early vampire mythology proliferated across Europe, with the nefarious monsters often used to explain plagues and other diseases. As Scientific American notes, cases of rare blood disorder called porphyria, which we've mentioned before, in Eastern Europe may be the root of certain physical characteristics attributed to vampires. These include sensitivity to light, hallucinations, and receding gums that give the impressions of elongated teeth. Ooh. And the effect of sensitivity to life can be so to light can be so severe that sufferers lose their ears and noses. A physio physiognomy echoed in the looks of vampires such as Neferatu the BBC reported. We long associated vampires with Transylvania, a historic region of Romania, in large part because it's where the fictional Dracula originally hailed. And that was an intentional choice on Bram Stoker's part due to the area's superstitions. In Romania, fear of Strigoli, or Strigoi, once human monsters who need blood to survive have circulated for hundreds of years. In fact, in 2005, the Guardian covered a vampire slaying ritual in Romanian village performed after deceased laborer Petra Toma's family decided he'd become a Strigoi in 2003. Six men exhumed the body, staked it, sprinkled it with garlic, and opened Toma's ribcage with a pitchfork. They took out his heart, burned it, and drank the ashes in a glass of water, the neighbor of Toma told the outlet. In neighboring Bulgaria, a 700-year-old skeleton discovered in 2012 points to the region's own vampire-slaying custom, pinned down with a rock to keep the dead from rising. It has also been stabbed through the chest with an iron rod. His teeth have been removed, so he couldn't bite. Meanwhile, in a mass grave in the 16th century, plague victims unearthed by archaeologists, archaeologists, <laughs> I don't know why I can't say that, in Italy in 2006, a brick was wedged into one female skeleton's jaw, an exorcism technique used to suspend on suspected vampires in Europe at the time. According to National Geographic, while others, researchers have since posited that the brick, the brick simply fell into the skull's mouth while in the grave, anti-vampire rituals were a reality in both Europe and eventually the United States. Illness gave rise to the New England vampire panic. In the 1800s, residents of rural New England would disinter, desecrate, and rebury bodies of their neighbors, according to Bell's Food for the Dead book. 
This happened at least 60 times. It was another case of vampires taking the blame for a widespread contagious disease. Historians say tuberculosis, otherwise known as consumption. The most famous instance, of course, the story of Mercy Brown, which we've already covered. All right. Vampires are became scary and sexy in the 19th century. In the time, Exeter residents burned poor Mercy Lena Brown's heart. Provincial fear of vampirism was already bumping up against modern science-aligned thinking. The desecrated grave rituals had also wrinkled the Catholic Church. In the late 1700s, Pope Benedict Fourteenth, proclaimed that vampires were fallacious fictions of human fantasy. Over the following century, a growing number of creative works could offer fresh fantasy, giving vampires a major image makeover. More about Vlad the Impaler. A lack of knowledge about the very gross things that happen to the human body certainly stoked the notion of why people think vampires drink blood. As a corpse skin shrinks, its teeth, fingernails can appear to have grown longer, National Geographic points out. And as internal organs break down, a dark purge fluid can leak out of the nose and mouth. When a body suspected of vampirism was dug up, the appearance of the purge fluid could be mistaken for blood, giving the impression the deceased had consumed something. Alright. Let's see. Alright, let's take a short break and be right back at it after this. All right, welcome back. We're going to jump into a book that I've been perusing called National Geographic's Guide to the World's Supernatural Places by Sarah Bartlett. There's a whole chapter in here on vampire haunts. I definitely encourage everyone to uh, check this book out, read it, um, because I'm definitely not going to have time to read all of these. But definitely some cool stuff in here. Plus, we'll, uh, skip around, pick and choose. Um, but yeah. All right. Without further ado, let's get started. Highgate Cemetery, London, England. This Victorian necropolis has a sinister and unsettling energy, even on a sunlit morning. At night, Highgate Cemetery is one, one of the creepiest places in London. Passersby sometimes describe being blown by a chill or sudden wind. By day, the dappled light reveals paths lined by family crypts overgrown with weeds, broken angels, and crumbling, ivy-clad gravestones. Among the dark shapes lurking in the tangled undergrowth lies a grave said by some to belong to a vampire. In 1970, two young vampire hunters named David Ferrant and Sean Manchester became convinced of vampire activity in the cemetery. Ferrant claimed that vampire was a Romanian nobleman and practitioner of the black arts. 
and brought to England in a coffin and buried in the hillside at Highgate in the 18th century. According to Ferret's theory, or Ferrant's theory, after the cemetery opened in the 19th century, the vampire occupied one of the vaults. Manchester claimed the modern-day Satanists had stirred the beast and that it was imperative to find its body, then stake, behead, and, bur and burn it. He declared on an official vampire hunt on Friday, March 13, 1970. On the event of the hunt, or the evening of the hunt, vampire hunters from all over London converged on the cemetery, swarmed over the locked gates, but they found nothing. Meanwhile, Ferrat, under the guidance of a psychic, claimed to learn the location of the vampire's grave. One night, he entered an undisclosed family vault, lifted the massive lid of one of the coffins, he was about to drive a stake through the body when his companion persuaded him to stop. Reluctantly, Ferrant shut the coffin and left garlic in the vault. No one knows for sure which crypt this is, but if you walk through the cemetery at dusk, just before closing time, they say you can see a menacing figure lingering near the family vault of Sir James Tyler. Kruglin Grange, Cumbria, England a classic vampire tale began with a tap on the window of the spooky mansion in northern England. High among the windswept fells of Cumbria lies the ancient village of Croglin. The icy north wind whistles along the low stone walls. Sheep huddle close, and farmers shake the snow from their boots, quickly locking their cottage doors before night falls. A source of their fear is Croglin's vampire, described in Augustine. Here's an 1875 tale of Kroglin Grange. According to the story, Kroglin's sinister reputation began with the owners of the hall. The Fisher family moved away from the area and rented out their property. Their departure coincided with the reports of an unseen presence in the village. During the winter, the house lay empty, but in spring, two brothers and their sister, Amelia Cranswell, moved in. One night, Amelia saw a creature with flaming eyes tapping at her window. She sat bolt upright, unable to move, as, windows, as the window opened and a figure entered. Coming closer, it pulled back her head and sank its fangs into her throat. Hearing Amelia scream, her brothers raced into her room and chased the vampire to the churchyard, where it disappeared into the crypt. After Amelia's recovery in Switzerland, the brothers returned to Kroglin to hunt down the vampire. Inside the crypt, all but one of the coffins had been opened and bodies ripped out. Opening the one sealed coffin, they found the shriveled vampire. They dragged the coffin into the churchyard and burned it to ashes. Oh my gosh. Cairn Gorms, Scottish Highlands. Among the craggy mountains, bloodlusting she-devils lead heedless travelers to dance to a dance of death. Never wander through the pine-clad slopes of the Cairngorms at night, for an ancient vampire called the Bopon Sith is said to haunt them. Known as the White Woman of the Highlands, she lives in the lower slopes but wails from the highest mountaintops in deep winter snow. According to the legend, Bopon Sith rises from the dead and hunts in packs. They lure young men to dance with them, then at the first kiss sink their fingernails into their necks and drain their blood. 
One legend tells of a group of 18th century travelers who camped for the night in a small glade. As they warmed their hands by the fire, four women emerged from the darkness and invited them to dance. As the women prepared to strike, one man escaped and ran toward the horses. Safe from attack thanks to the iron horseshoes, a metal said to be feared by vampires, the man survived, and by dawn the vampires had gone. According to Scottish legend, the only way to stop a bullpon seath is to build a mound of stones or a carn over their grave. Disturbingly, there are many carns throughout the highlands. Remove them at your peril. Snagov Lake, Romania. As night falls on this foggy lake, Vlad the Impaler rises from the grave in search of bloody-filled prey. On a tiny filled island, or on a tiny island in the middle of the Snagov Lake in Romania, Snagov Monastery was once only accessible by boat. A bridge now connects it to the mainland, but it still maintains an eerie atmosphere and a sense of isolation. Early in the morning, as the mist rises from the water, they say the bell tolls twice and the monastery door slams shut, but no one knows who causes this. When the dawn breaks, it is said a solitary vampire returns to his lonely tomb. Here, surrounded by frescoes and religious paintings, is the burial place of Vlad the Impaler. Vlad was butchered and then decapitated by treacherous nobles in the forest near here, in 1476 during a war against the Turks. They sent his head preserved in honey to Istanbul where the Ottoman Sultan displayed it on a stake to prove that Impaler was dead. An excavation of the tomb in 1931 reportedly found an empty grave though some accounts tell of the exhumation of a richly dressed decapitated body. Whatever the truth, as you gaze at the simple stone tomb, you may well wonder if the vampire rises from the grave at night to cross the bridge in search of prey. Kadan, the Czech Republic. A vampire in this remote village struck eight times in eight nights and pulled a stake from its own heart. In 1337, in the village of Blau, or Blau, whatever not far from the czech town of kadan villagers claimed they were being targeted by a vampire shepherd a book of 1687 recounts how the deceased shepherd left his grave and for eight nights drained the blood of eight villagers all of whom died within eight days according to the story the panic-stricken villagers dug up the grave pinned the shepherd to the earth with a stake but the vampire refused to be destroyed so easily. Taunting the villagers, it thanked them for providing a stick to keep the dogs away, ripped it from his corpse, and continued with its nightly feastings. In despair, the villagers called in the local executioner, who loaded the corpse onto a wagon, took it to be burned. As the horse and cart rushed out of the village, the corpse sprang to life, screaming wildly, flapping its feet and hands. As soon as they reached a dark Cops, copes, the villagers staked the vampire over and over again until its blood gushed like a fountain over the cart. The villagers then burned the vampire in the cart, and from then on it is said the village of Kadan was left in peace. Right.
Ooh, let's uh, read more about the bloody or the blood countess. This happened in Slovakia. These haunted ruins were once the home of the notorious Countess Elizabeth Bathory, popularly known as the Blood Countess, as I mentioned earlier in our podcast. Between eight or fifteen eighty-five and sixteen ten, the Countess murdered more than six hundred girls in her quest for eternal youth. The killing spree is said to have started when a maid pricked her finger while dressing the countess. When the blood spurted onto the Elizabeth's cheek, she looked in the mirror and thought her skin seemed younger. A horrifying urge to bathe in the blood came over the countess, and with the help of her other servants, she slit the maid's throat, hung her upside down, and drained the blood into a vat. Believing she would stay young forever if she bathed in blood every day, Elizabeth followed a murderous pattern, luring young girls to the castle by offering them jobs as servants. Some were tortured to extract their blood, others were killed. As the new maids reached inside a cabinet to take out their mistress's jewelry, knives shot out and impaled them to the cupboard. The girls were said to suffer a slow and painful death as their blood dripped into a channel that was connected to the bathtub in the next room. Elizabeth's horrifying acts were eventually discovered. Bodies were found in the castle crypt and in the fields. As punishment, she was imprisoned in the castle walls with only one slit in the door for the delivery of food. Elizabeth died there four years later. Some say her body was taken to the family crypt in Hungary, but others say she was buried in the crypt for where she rises each night in search of blood. Either way, the stories concerning the Countess are so awful and powerful that the locals will not go near the castle to this day. Huh. Right. Trying to find a good one. There's a couple of smaller ones. Five key vampire haunts in the Caribbean. The countries of the Caribbean claim some of the most feared vampires in the world. Voodoo demons that have bred with the European revenants to produce fetus-eating fiends and blood-drinking fireballs. All right. Paraclet Granada. In Caribbean folklore, an old woman called a... Lagaru, in pact with the devil, change into, changes into a werewolf to tear out the human entrails and drink blood. One story tells how Lagaru, in the guise of a beautiful woman, fell in love with a doctor. As morning came, she turned to sink her nails into the doctor's stomach, but the light came too quickly, and she shriveled into a heap of dust. Ox, Ox K's Haiti. In the 1920s, a self-confessed Lagaru, Anastasia uh, Duedon, admitted to draining the blood of her nine-year-old niece. She was discovered when the family's, the girl's family, believing she was suffering from a wasting disease, called in a voodoo doctor to examine her. He pointed to a tiny, unhealed incision hidden in the middle of her great toe, 
which Anastasia had been sucking. Uh, Horuku Mountains, Dominican Republic. The mountain range is said to be haunted by beam beams. A 18th century slaves who ran away from their captors and turned into vampires. Short and deformed and ugly, they walked backwards. They walked backwards, eating the entrails of their victims and using the blood for sacrifices to their gods. Listen for low growls and gurgling. It could be a beam beam on the prow. All right, Pyramid Trinidad. In northern Trinidad, a demon brought to the island on slave ships is said to trade voodoo spells for human blood. Each night, he sends a female vampire called a Sukayant to search for a new victim. Transforming herself into a fireball, she enters the home through the keyhole and sucks the blood of the, from sleeping women. She then delivers it to the demon lord in return for evil powers. Kistara Tobago, here surely the grieving and vengeful spirits of women who died, who died in childbirth or committed suicide during pregnancy prey on pregnant women. Dressed in white and carrying a fetus, they walk through the night as their unborn child cries for milk. It is said that a truly possesses her victims, and then causes her to miscarry so that she can drink the fetus's blood. Ooh, creepy, creepy. Right. Templo Mayor, Mexico City, Mexico. Since the bloodthirsty days of the Aztecs, Mexicans have held a strong belief in revenants, zombie-like creatures that return from the dead. Such creatures are said to lurk at crossroads and dark alleyways and in the Templo Mayor in Mexico City, one of the Aztecs' main temples. Templo Mayor was a major center of human sacrifice. The Aztec believed their moon gods transformed noble women who died in childbirth into horrific vampires who were known as Sivateo. Seductive and hypnotic, they would shapeshift into beautiful women to mate with men who then mysteriously died. The dreaded Civitateo gave birth to vampire children and murdered human babies to feed their lust for blood. Modern Mexicans leave maize cakes at crossroads shrines to placate these evil entities. They say that you will recognize a one by her shriveled body, chalky skin, and her shroud-like robes trimmed with crossbones. Okay. Ooh. The Pontianak, West Kalimantan, Indonesia. In Indonesian mythology, a blood-sucking vampire tells off, tears off men's genitals and feeds on their innards. In West Kalimantan, never leave your clothes outside at night. If you do, it is said a blood-sucking woman will sniff you out and disembowel you. Known as a Pontianak, the dreaded creature is believed to be the spirit of a pregnant woman. There's a lot of similarities between some of these legends. According to the legend, the first sultan of 
Pontianak named the city after the vampire stalker in an attempt to placate her. The ghostly white Pontianak lives in banana trees by day, but at night turns into a beautiful woman dressed in white, who beguiles any man who comes near her. If you hear a dog howling, the Pontianak is said to be far away, while a dog whining means she is close. Seeing her long, sharp fingernails into the victim's stomach, she rips out the organs and devours them, then tears off the genitals. Should her victims have his eyes open, she will suck them out of his head. The only way to fend off a Pontianak is to plunge a nail into the nape of her neck. She will be tamed until the nail is removed. The Kuntanak Kuntilanak is related to the Pontianak, but usually appears in the shape of a bird and sucks the blood of virgins and young women. Among other female demons in Indonesia, the Langsir is also chiefly associated with pregnancy. Oof. Goodness. Freaky, freaky. I've seen a lot of stuff about oh my gosh about pregnant women a lot okay um let's see let's take a short break and come back and wrap this episode up all right one last group, and this comes from the same book, National Geographic. Uh, it's five gruesome Indian blood fest sites. Hindu legends are filled with violent and evil creatures intent on attacking unwary innocents. In fact, wherever you go in Indi India, there may be bloodthirsty creatures not far behind. Kolkata, West Bengal. The Kalig Kali and Dakshinswar Kali temples are dedicated to Kali, the goddess of time and death. Depicted with terrifying fangs and wearing a garland of human skulls in legend, Kali and the goddess Durga battle the demon Rakjabaja, Raktabja, who reproduces himself from every drop of blood spilled. Kali wins the battle and forever takes the blood from of anyone she chooses. Vital Temple, Mumbai. Flesh eaters and blood drinkers resemble skeletons with large tattered wings. Malevolent spirits of the dead trapped between life and the afterlife. They know the past, present, and future. They drug your young babies, virgins, and pregnant women, then carry them back to their bloody lair. There, they slowly rip apart the stomach, extract the bowels, and gorge on the flesh. Number three, Patna Bihar. According to Patna legend, Boots, spelled B-H-O-O-T-S, are the evil spirit of a people who have not had a proper burial or have committed suicide or been executed. Their feet face backward and they float about three feet off the ground, casting no shadow. Boots 
like like human milk best, but they will shapeshift into beautiful women to drain the blood of men. Number four, Ravana Temple, Kanpur. This temple is dedicated to Ravana, the king of the Rakshasas, a ferocious being with red eyes and flaming hair who drinks blood from human schools. Evil spirits with long fangs that sniff out the innocent women and children. Rakshasas lives in the city cemeteries, disrupting prayers, rituals, and funeral rites. Jaipur, Rajasthan. In Jaipur legend, bloody intestine wreath, the head of a vampiric Brahmapursha, making a small incision in its victim's neck or arm, it sucks the blood which it then regurgitates into the skull of its previous victim. Drinking the blood from the skull, it tears open the body to devour the liver and heart before wrapping itself in the intestines and performing a ritual dance. My gosh, a lot of blood. A lot of blood stuff. Rowing, Malaysia. Among many dark myths in Malaysia is the grisly tale of the Pengalan. The Penangalan. According to the story, a beautiful woman taking a ritual bath in a mixture of honey and vinegar was startled by a strange man appearing by her side. In her fright, the woman swiveled her head so suddenly that it detached from her body, spilling entrails across the room. Enraged by the intruder, she flew after him, her decapitated head trailing viscera and dripping blood while her twitching corpse slumped in the bathtub. It is said that the Penangalan seeks out pregnant women or mothers with young babies. By night, she flies quickly like a bat, swooping from the rainforests, plumbing down cliff faces, and traveling over the sea, her entrails dangling. By day, she changes into a beautiful woman, but cursed by the smell of vinegar, she is forced to live alone. Penangalan is believed to appear at birth rather than death. She perches on the roof of houses when women are in labor, screeching when the child is born. Squeezing through the cracks in the floorboards and walls, she laps up the afterbirth and scoops up newborns with her tongue. If she touches a mother or older child, they soon contract a fatal wasting disease, while anyone who is brushed by the entrails suffer open sores that will only heal with a shaman's magic. Ooh, gruesome. All right. I think that's going to do it for us today. I hope you've enjoyed our brief history on vampires, vampire lore, and a couple of vampire stories. All right. So you can always connect with us on the Facebook page, Paranormal Stories, Spooky Shizzes in parentheses. Um, go ahead and join the Facebook page. Send us any of your own personal stories to be read on the podcast. Those are the ones that we really enjoy to do. Um, and other than that, stay spooky, my friends.